Jessica loves Labour's watch. As always, I'm I'm not from Jessica. <laughs> I'm Hannah. <laughs> Especially because I'm, I'm not sure people can necessarily tell from our voices yeah, anyway. No, I'm Hannah. Francesca. And yes, um, we are back in person, socially distanced, of course, but this is the first time we've actually recorded an episode where we aren't staring at each other through house party or something like that. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, it, you know, we we found it weird recording remotely at first, but then we very mm. much got used to it. And yeah. we obviously did all these great remote interviews, but it is really nice to obviously be in person and to be able to see you in person. I think yeah. it makes a huge difference. Well, equally, and just in terms of the, uh, the perils of editing an episode like this, oh, it just yeah. means that there is there's a funny thing you don't realize about the internet in which it actually doesn't travel as fast as you always want it to so sometimes you be editing and you realize someone's reaction is like maybe 20 seconds after the thing you said and you're like what are they laughing at it sounds really weird because yeah i've been listening to it before and you suddenly hear this rogue laughter like echoing and you're like what's going on so Yeah, yeah so we're delighted to be back um and if you haven't heard of us before we were just listening for the first time um we are two 20 somethings who live in london and we've been podcasting for about two years now and we generally do interviews with authors directors actors every now and again writers um about a whole series of things we generally are focused on um kind of women focused creative cultural things whether it be plays or books or tv yeah um music sometimes we did talk about taylor swift's new album last week um, and this week, we have an equally exciting interview, as always. So, uh, yeah, Francesca, do you want to in- introduce uh, our our guest for this week? A guest? Panellist? Interviewee? <laughs> in- a guest. Guest. Yeah, so our guest this week is the author Susanna Dickey, who just published her first novel, mm. Tennis Lessons. Yeah. Uh, Susanna grew up in Derry. She now lives in Belfast. Um, she's in her 20s and has produced this wonderful coming of age book which yeah. is basically about a young girl's journey from from childhood very early childhood to adulthood mm-hmm. and it's really interesting it plays with form yes it's sort of snapshots of her life like through the years and also is told in the second person which is like quite interesting and quite mm-hmm. unusual yeah it is. um and yeah we were really excited to speak to Susanna I called her up and, and had a chat all about the book and all about her inspiration her her reasons for picking this like unusual form yeah. and um Susanna has a background in poetry mm-hmm. but she decided to pick prose for this story which we thought was quite interesting and interesting yes. to pick her brains about so yeah it was really great to speak to her as as always we do we did ask Susanna well we I say Francesca I would happen to be on holiday at the time obviously um, asked her to give her us her take on the book and she really gets uh, into the details of why she wrote it and her thoughts on it so as always uh, better to get the words and the opinions from the author's own mouth yeah. so we have some other good stuff coming up on this episode including you know some interesting pap twilight related things so stay tuned for that but let's get going with the interview yeah first of all for any listeners who haven't read tennis lessons yet whether you could give a brief spoiler free summary yeah uh, so tennis lessons is a kind of buildings roman style or coming of age novel that follows an unnamed female protagonist from the age of three to 28 and it's in three yeah. sections and the first section, you follow her in these little vignettes, stopping in at different periods of her formative years. And then the middle section all takes place over one day when she's 17. And then you see how that day impacts on the years that follow and it resumes that, you know, vignette structure again. And it's, um, you know, I guess it's concerned with uh, ideas of, of self-perception and and friendship and the female body and you know living following trauma and just kind of coming to terms with yourself really as you say the novel focuses on different chapters in the protagonist's childhood teenage years and young adult and the readers sort of dropped in on a different day in her life and sometimes the moments described will be obviously significant other times they'll seem potentially seem more inconsequential, but they still reveal something of her world in that moment. Why did you adopt this really interesting and intimate storytelling structure? Um, I 
think because when I set out writing it, I never had so much a clear idea of plot as I had a clear idea of character. Um, I had this woman that I wanted to write and what I wanted to write was the arc of this portion of her life. You know, there's the vignettes with so little cohesion or firm terrain as, as the novel moves. Um, that's kind of how she thinks. She has this very disjointed way of, of thinking. And yeah. so I kind of wanted to capture that confusion and, and that just arbitrary, um, attribution of importance to different moments and different memories. You, you've published some poetry collections in the past. Um, we wondered why you decided to tell this story in the prose format. Um, I guess, you know, well, I mean, a lot of my poetry uh, is quite narrative based. Um, so I would write a lot of prose poems, which are a really interesting form in how they kind of play with narrative. And, and there's yeah. never so much a plot, but things happen and, and you can play with language and still have this slightly surreal way of, of looking at normal things. And, and I wanted to ascribe that to her because, you know, she's, she's quite a um, non-intuitive thinker. Um, but at the same time, I wanted this, this arc, this arc of her life that seemed much more readily adaptable to a novel form. I felt like, you know, this, the, the things I really wanted to get to grips with um, and, and they lent themselves to prose rather than poetry and I wanted the opportunity right. to reveal her through dialogue, which again was much more prose friendly. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the novel is also written in the second person, so you address the reader as you. We wondered yeah. what drove you to adopt this narrative style. Um, you know, we felt it kind of adds some sort of intimacy and and encourages the readers to relate to the protagonist. But we wondered if you could speak a bit on on that choice. Yeah. Um. So something I I spend a kind of lot of time thinking about is is form and and voice. And um, I think that experimental forms, you know, if there are such things, forms that are slightly off kilter in how they approach voice or character or linearity can be so useful in exploring certain subject matters. And I think given that this is a novel that's so concerned with powerlessness in that she's such a passive participant in her own life, that kind of relentless reiteration of you really um, achieved that for me that idea that mm. she had so little agency in what was happening to her her life was happening to her and also I wanted to really um, kind of put that claustrophobia onto the reader as well because you know I think the the second person can extend beyond just the empathy of the first person it's mm. it kind of holds a reader in in its grip and it can be quite discomforting. And, yeah. and that's that's what I wanted. Yeah. And similarly, the language in the novel is often quite graphic and, and visceral in, in the depiction of the narrator and her experiences. Was it important to you to write with this candor and honesty about her her life as she progresses from, from childhood to young adulthood? Yeah. Um Sorry, I feel like I'm saying the word yeah a lot. Just no, that's, that's cool. <laughs> tell me when to stop saying yeah. Um, she is so obsessed with her body. Mm. Um, and, and part of that is this perception she has of herself as monstrous. She has this really skewed body dysmorphia that prevents her from seeing herself with any degree of objectivity. And part of writing that was, was leaning into her engagement with her body, which was showing it as she sees it, which is this really gross, visceral, gooey thing that's never behaving in the way that she wants it to, that never looks the way she wants it to. She sees herself as just this, you know, um, mass of, 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 viscera and and grotesqueness yeah um yeah and I guess you know and something 
I've been thinking about more recently, um, because uh, so a, a novel that was published recently, I don't know if you've read it, This Happy by Neve Campbell. Right. Yeah, no, I haven't read it. Um, and it's she's she's an Irish novelist too. And yeah. What's interesting about her book is is the world around the character exists, and then it's about locating the character within her world. And there are quite a lot of political concerns imbued through the book, but mm. the way she handles that is is quite explicitly through dialogue and this active discussion of of the politics of this place and temporality that she finds herself in i guess in in tennis lessons there isn't really a world beyond the character um you only get the sense of the world through through who she is Mm. Um, beyond that you have no real perception of it but at the same time there are these political concerns weaving themselves through it like um probably quite like neoliberal concerns like the precariousness of like the renters market the job market um and so many of her perceived feelings are bound up in her inadequacy as as i guess what would be kind of capitalism's ideal consumer you know she's not beautiful and she's not adorned and she's not sexually confident um and even you know the way she sometimes hears jingles from from television adverts in, mm. her, in her head um it wasn't a book that i intended when i started writing it to be kind of an explicit comment on any of this stuff but it wound up being quite insidious in, in how it wove its way through it's also quite interesting that you know there are, there are moments of comedy in the book um as well as obviously darker incidents and you end up having this sort of darkly comic tone at times and we wondered whether that was a sort of natural result of the novel's realism or whether you were trying to kind of evoke a specific sort of wry sense of humor um I guess I guess maybe both um but mm. I would I I mean I'm not going to kind of speak to the you know ubiquity of this in, in any other place but I will say that you know in in Northern Ireland I'd say there's a real tendency towards that kind of flippancy um I wouldn't say that we're the most natural communicators in in any kind of sincere way I think you know we have a real tendency to to siphon humor from things that even aren't necessarily terribly funny um and so I guess you know those elements of the novel probably weren't really a stretch to me because that's probably how I interact with the world also yeah yeah and I guess on on a sort of similar note and one of the ways in which that sort of dark comic tone comes to the fore is in the depiction of female friendships which are explored in all their complex and sometimes toxic glory um you know I love the relationship between the narrator and her best friend Rachel and we see how that develops as they grow old or grow older together but also the more complicated relationship between her high school frenemy Charlie Mm. Uh, we wondered if you could speak a bit about that theme of female friendships in the novel and and how it kind of is woven through the story um because I think I think female friendship is is so incredible but also so deeply complicated yeah um, especially in adolescence because everyone is is maturing at a different pace and Mm. is on a different trajectory and no matter kind of how strong your your friendships are there's always a sense of self-preservation there um yeah so i think in like the teenage years obviously she has this friendship with rachel that's so vital to her um but in their adolescence they experience these moments of friction and mostly that comes from Rachel not necessarily going to bat for her all the time and and Rachel having fallen in with this alpha figure in Charlie and ultimately you know Rachel's a teenage girl too Rachel is is trying to to find her own way um but then as the, as they grow up they kind of um refind each other at a at a similar level and mm. then you can see that friendship really nicely mutated into an adult friendship um, and what's so great about Rachel for me as a character is that in these moments of dialogue and in her interactions with the protagonist, she is the 
only, I guess, voice of, of objectivity. She's the only one who is really reminding this protagonist that, you know, she's she's not so appalling. She's not so unlovable. She's mm. there consistently as a as a tether. Yeah. Yeah, I really liked that too. And and also was really pleased that they were still friends as adults because I thought it did it it definitely depicted how you can have those complicated relationships with people who are very close to you and you can kind of be on different wavelengths at different points. But then the fact they've kind of come together in adulthood, despite their different set of experiences and different personalities was, was really gratifying. And we also see the main character's relationship with her parents and how that changes as she grows older. Um, the mother-daughter relationship, I think, was particularly interesting. We wondered how you approach that and how you approach that kind of the idea of as you grow older, you realise that your parents are people beyond just being your parents. We wondered how you sort of explored that theme and, and how that came to be prominent in the book. Um, because I guess in its in its early iterations, I was so fixated on the protagonist that mm. a lot of the other characters suffered. They they didn't get their you know their due diligence. They were neglected right. and and they were really just sort of there as as people of whom she could ricochet and 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 use um and they were just kind of mechanisms um and then as time went on i thought you know this is really grossly unfair to these people um you know her parents are are people as well they are people who are experiencing their own pain and their own difficulties, their own stresses. And I was just really keen to, to write this idea that obviously parental love is, is unconditional, but that doesn't mean that it's always necessarily manifesting in ways that are kind. Um, and, you know, you see that with, with some of her early interactions with her mother, how they are just so very different people. And her mum has this love that manifests through anxiety and, and occasionally anger um stemming from fear and then as as the as the protagonist grows and and becomes more of a, a person who can fend for herself that fear in the mother dissipates and you see them mm. become closer hopefully as, as yeah. a result yeah and it's interesting you touched there on having several drafts and, and the, you know the process of bringing the book together we wondered if you could speak a bit about that and about you know what the starting point was maybe the inspiration and then how you did work your way into the book becoming you know the book that we as readers hold in our hands today yeah absolutely um so you know you you touched there on on how um I write poetry and and poetry was was what I started writing um, yeah um I think it's probably a fairly common pitfall when writing poetry um, is to over-aestheticize and this really like dogged commitment to aesthetics can be used to cover up what are some probably fairly half-baked ideas. And I think, you know, in the early iterations of Kenna's lessons, it suffered for that too um, because I was, I was thinking so much about these meticulously constructed sentences that, that there wasn't really anything happening. <laughs> it wasn't so much a novel as it was just 60,000 words mm. um, arranged nicely. Um, and then, you know, I started to think more actively about about form and um, I wanted this slightly experimental form because I think it's, I think an experimental form that, that somehow plays with with linearity um, can be so useful for for writing characters that are struggling, be that with a sense of powerlessness or, or with um, a power dynamic. Um, and there were so many books that really influenced me in, in writing it and how they were shaped, like books like First Love by Gwendolyn Riley, um, which really disrupts chronology to show how past relationships impact on the protagonist's current relationship. And then um, Britt Bennett's The Mothers, which has this mm. haunting collective voice, which is almost reminiscent of Virginia Woolf. Um, 
and then you've got NW by Zadie Smith, which is a book I talk about so much, people probably think it's the only book I've read. Right. Um, and she does this, she does these really interesting things with typography and, and form. Um, and, you know, it was, it was thinking about all those that then, and I, and I wrote it initially in this very, oh, overwrought experimental way where it was, all over the place chronologically um there were all these indented flashbacks and flash forwards and mm. it was oh it was a maelstrom it was largely unreadable <laughs> and then a couple of people suggested the very radical idea to me that i write it in the order in which it was happening right <laughs> so i did that and it was a real you know light bulb moment that mm. it, it worked so much better um and that was how it happened yeah well that's really interesting to hear about that that process and the the main character in the book she's never named and was that always the case in all your drafts and was that always something that was kind of important to you and what what would you say is like the meaning of that um that namelessness of, of your main character um, initially I tried a couple of names and they just they felt inadequate. Okay. And then I thought, you know, let's let's try her without a name. And then it seemed that she's nameless for for the same reason that we never find out what she looks like. Um, because mm. she's someone who struggles to conceive of herself in any kind of objective way. Her self perception is so contingent on her encounters and her experiences and I others see her she's um so detached from from the world um she has no consistency of self-image no reliable basis for herself she's like a very mutable person and it almost felt like giving her the the legitimizing reification of a name it felt felt wrong right yeah that's interesting and i do think as well from a reader's perspective it does again allow you to kind of identify with her and you know put your own expectations onto her in some ways and another part of the book I wanted to touch upon is the main character spends a lot of time in the school environment while she's at school she works through a lot of relatable experiences like puberty and exams and and just interactions with classmates and and teachers and while reading the book I found myself picturing my high school and recalling what that was like (laughs) and it made me think about how school days can impact us long after we've graduated. And we wondered if that was something you were thinking of while you were working on the novel, whether you found yourself remembering things that had happened to you when you were that kind of age. Um, and yeah, just the impact of that environment. And I suppose also that kind of the pressure to do well academically, because that's something that your protagonist really feels. And yeah, the kind of, I suppose as well, like claustrophobia that can sometimes be inherent to the school environment yeah um because it's interesting tying that question in with with what you just said about how the namelessness makes it kind of easier for for a reader to to maybe put themselves in in her position because you know it's um something i've been thinking about is james wood the critic wrote this really bizarre and, and terrible review where he coined this this completely meaningless term hysterical realism for um, mm. writing that combines, you know, examinations of social phenomena with really excessive and and wild plotting and or characterization, and I guess tennis lessons really really doesn't do that. It's um, so many of the the events in the book and the experiences are so kind of low level and, and quotidian and and unremarkable. Um, I don't know what you would call that lethargic realism, maybe. Um, but yeah I think I was I was so keen just to to capture the the slightly um battery hen claustrophobia low level relentlessness of 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 a school experience Mm. how um nothing that bad need necessarily happen it can just be these these uncomfortable encounters or this just gentle feeling of of not belonging and just the residual lasting effects of that um yeah because it's it's a bizarre place school you know you take all these 
adolescent idiots who, <laughs> who don't know really how to how to be people. They so often don't know how to treat themselves. They so often don't know really how to treat others. And then you make them spend upwards of, of seven hours a day together. And um, of course, it's it's going to massively skew your entire, you know, outlook. Mm. Um, and I was just, yeah, really keen to capture that. Because, I mean, you know, the protagonist isn't blameless. She um, engages in exactly some of the types of cruelty that are then put on her. So yeah. it's, it's this real... Um, feedback response look happening yeah no absolutely and the book's been out for um a week or so we wonder Mm. what that experience has been like and you know what some of the feedback and reactions you've had so far and and just how it's been for you as a a debut novelist publishing a book in in this time um it's it's been slightly odd um right (laughs) i feel i feel incredibly incredibly fortunate to have got um the, you know some of the reviews have been have been so lovely and i just feel very grateful that people are engaging with it at all um because i guess something you think about now especially you know if you're um an irish author is is you know and, and people ask you about this is 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 obviously the sally rooney effect um, sure and you know there's clearly no kind of homo- um homogeneity across the young Irish authors writing, we're not all doing the same thing. Um, but I think um, I would be lying if I thought I hadn't benefited from from her kind of meteoric success. I mm. think she has made publishers um, excited about young Irish writers. Um, yeah. But ultimately, I guess, you know, I know the book I've written is... is won't be to everyone's taste um for starters because it's the second person which um i am increasingly finding out a lot of people hate (laughs) it's quite divisive definitely yeah Yeah. and you know i guess i I don't know why that had never even i mean i guess when i started writing it i knew so little and had so little insight into publishing that i wasn't even writing with with any kind of of thought as to whether people would ever read it or would ever write it would like it once yeah. they did read it um so yeah i feel just incredibly fortunate to to have written this slightly off-kilter book and and to have people taking the time to engage with it and respond positively um mm. i guess the weirdest thing about releasing a book at this time is I just have so much time with my own terrible thoughts <laughs> right <laughs> um, so that's been the worst part of it because um, I'm definitely uh, one for self-flagellation and, and um, indulgent introspection and maybe if I was you know allowed to move out in the world a little bit more I would be just thinking a little bit less about whether or not people will like it <laughs> yeah yeah, no, I can I can see how that would be strange. And actually, we were wondering as well, often, I think, particularly with young female novelists, people assume that your book is autobiographical. Um, and with your book, because it's so intimate, because it's told in the second person structure, and, you know, because it is about a young woman as well, have you had people making those assumptions? And if so, how do you feel about that? Yes, no, people people love, love to assume autobiography in, yeah. in women's fiction. And um, I guess I always wonder whether it's better to to say yes or, or no to questions of autobiography and tennis lessons. Mm. Because um, I wonder if I say yes, does, does that make me more likable? Because then people get to know a bit more about me. Um, or if I say no, does it make me a better writer for having imagined something completely alien to me and, and having written it convincingly? Um, it's it's a weird question to, to get confronted with, especially, you know, I guess, given some of the more brutal elements of, of the plot and the mm. things that happen. Um, it's hilarious uh, sometimes the liberties people take in, in asking you about that and and asking if that pertains to you. Right. It's just like, me. 
you shouldn't ever ask anyone that question if you don't know them. Like, yeah. Just, um, but it's 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 a weird one. I completely get why people ask because you know we we are morbidly curious. Um, but I guess I just wonder about the legitimacy of that line of questioning, like what it what it proves, what it accomplishes to to know these things about a writer. Yeah, and as you say, what answer do people want? You know, exactly. when, when you when you're going to respond to that? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and just as a, a final question, you know, we often ask interviewees what books or TV shows or other pieces of pop culture they've been enjoying recently or found inspirational for their own work. I mean, you discussed earlier some of the books that were really influential for you when you were working on tennis lessons. But we wondered if there's anything else you've been enjoying recently that you wanted to spotlight or you think readers might enjoy if they've enjoyed your book or, or something completely different. Oh, um, oh, this is fun. Okay, well, um, I assume, I mean, I, she doesn't need me to recommend this, but I've just um, watched and rewatched uh, Michaela Cole's yeah. I May Destroy <laughs> You, which I think is just one of the most important pieces of, of mm. art of the last God knows how long. Um, Book-wise, uh, I read uh, Catherine Lacey's short story collection, Certain American States, okay. recently, and it's a really, really fun collection of stories. Um, she has just a breadth of imaginative scope that is completely um, enviable. Um, I'm also reading uh, Ella Frears's poetry collection, Shine, Darling. Um, which came out, I think, a few weeks ago. And it's it's a beautiful um, collection of poems. Uh, can I do one more? Yeah, go for it. Um, I am about to read uh, Britt Bennett's uh, new book, The Vanity, yeah. which I'm very excited about. Oh, I mean, that's so good. We actually had um, Britt Bennett on the show a few weeks ago. Um, which was so exciting because, yeah, she's such a talented author and it's a really good read. So in awe of her. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you so much um, for speaking to me today and for all those great recommendations as well. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Thank you so much to Susanna for coming on, having a chat with Francesca. Um, I think reading Tennis Lessons was definitely a quite uh, interesting and unique experience, particularly as she discussed and as you asked her about, because of the use of the you form yeah. for the narrative. I, I don't think I've read one single book that actually aimed and succeeded in doing that the whole time. I always thought it was a bit like ending a book with it was all a dream or yeah. something that was kind of like a literary faux pas. So I really liked I really like reading it from that perspective. I think it's interesting how she comes from a poetry background and Mm. that is suffused in the novel, even though it's prose. You know, there are sections which I think do read like poetry. It's slightly interesting too that that chronological element of it came later. Yeah. I mean, what do you think like a book like this could have been like with the poetical nature of it? It is a bit vague. It's very interiory. And also then it is, what if it wasn't also chronological? I mean, it's a really interesting thing to put in later. It's really interesting. I mean, when she was talking about those different drafts, I was almost curious to see what those look like. But Mm. I guess one of the things I was thinking is that the second person pronoun is often used in songs. So I know we had a big discussion last week about Taylor Swift. And obviously since then, you know, we've both been able to listen to the album even more. And Mm. I realised that actually it's really common in songwriting to be like, you do this, you did that. And it's not clear always who the singer for example Taylor Swift is actually talking about yeah, whether yeah, yeah. whether the you is her or the you is like someone else you know what I mean yeah, good point. Um, and so yeah I, I think that it maybe would have if if Susanna had kept with that original very um fragmented form it probably would have read more like poetry but I mean I really liked the the storytelling of it starting at the beginning mm. and like coming up to the present day because it felt like you were on a journey with the protagonist yeah. and I also think both you and I read it really, really quickly because basically there's no there's no chapters, you know what I mean? It's yeah. literally just like these snapshots of her of different days in her life. Mm. And they get um sometimes they're longer, sometimes they're shorter. Yeah. But you're kind of swept along and, and like I really wanted to know what was gonna happen and I just wanted to 
well, I just didn't really want to put it down, which is always the sign of a good book, really, isn't it? Yes, I know, I totally agree. And I think I was just so intrigued. I mean, aside of it, it was a book, like, I haven't really read anything like it, I will say, not just because of the form and mm. the fact that it's more, it's by a poet and I don't tend to read kind of books that are deemed a bit more lyrical, I suppose. Um, but equally, it's just the visceral kind of violent nature of this girl's life that yeah. I think is, I'm not, not not saying at all that it's unusual or different than the lives of people uh, generally, but it's more a very interesting interpretation and description of someone's life from right down to like the infection they have on their toe, which mm. is painful and visceral. And, you know, as a person, you feel these things and you feel bodily very close to the person in this book in terms of their physical experiences. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. And it's something that I found not uncomfortable, but it was in times difficult to read but I was still dragged along by the narrative and by the voice and by just kind of wanting to understand this person because mm. you know I think it's interesting a lot of the the stuff about it was basically kind of being like this person is an alien they're so weird you know what is it in the blurb they call it you know you're strange and wrong right I think it's interesting to sort of be drawn into the world of somebody who really from the outset wouldn't seem strange and wrong and alien it's just a slightly it's a teenage life where you feel angst and you feel confusion and you know um I think reading that was really really interesting and I definitely felt swept along by that and I think Suzanne Diggy has a real talent to really peel apart the normal things about life and to expose not how wrong they are but sometimes how unusual or strange the things that we tell ourselves are okay are you know right down to you know we talked about this earlier the reaction of her seeming best friend when you know the girl in the the protagonist is being humiliated by two other girls from the school and this girl her best friend does absolutely nothing um and the the girl the protagonist never even questions why her friend does nothing you know what i mean and i don't think they ever even particularly talk about it which like i thought was quite realistic um and i think the book is very much seeped in that realism yeah but often it is uncomfortable because often it's elements of our reality that you'd prefer not to dwell upon, mm-hmm. whether that's like the mean girls at high school or yes. whether that's your infected toenail, you know, like you don't necessarily want <laughs> yeah. to think about that stuff, but actually it's all stuff that we deal with all the time. And I yeah, think that's yeah. why it's just quite, it's a really interesting point of view because you're reading it and you're like, okay, yeah, like I get that. Or I, I know someone who's been through that or it all feels very relatable yeah. um, and human, but it's not necessarily the parts of, our day-to-day life that are usually kind of fictionalized or usually like brought to the fore yeah they're not sexy you know they're not you know like in i could go back to someone like rodham right like rodham doesn't talk about the ins and outs of hillary clinton's like physical experiences it's more about the bigger picture yeah and i think that's so dicky going into small it it sometimes felt so overwhelming sometimes i was like god how can one person feel this much or see this much or you know this is big this is like visceral moment where like she stalks her father and his perhaps new girlfriend Mm. into a pub and then you're there being like I don't want to be here Uh, but that's the point you know like uh, to get into the heart of people's experiences I think Susanna Dickey's asking us to do you need to kind of be there for the nasty moments that you wish you hadn't experienced or you wish you didn't have to see it's very Um, claustrophobic isn't it like and I think that's very different than when you're reading a book which is told from the third person you've got that degree Mm. of like being removed yeah no matter how like no matter what you're reading about you still feel like that one step removed from it whereas in this book you never have that freedom you're very much in her head I will say I do have a few little reservations Mm. um that I think come as a necessity of the style of book that it is I mean it's very one-sided it's from the perspective it's who is the it's the view that Suzanne Dickey wants to discuss it's the issue she's interested in I think it necessarily comes with a few a few things that I think sometimes happens in literary novels um, where uh, um, a, a description is too visceral here and there. And I think that the book sometimes to sort of fall afoul of things used to translate disgust, for example, like a fatness, hairiness, disgust in one's body. You know, those are things that the book kind of does speak about and does use that language and I do think that like if you kind of weren't aware that was happening or you would kind of perhaps be a bit shocked or surprised or maybe triggered I suppose by this kind of language so that's something that I think is not at all limited to Susanna's book 
it's more something that you kind of see across the board right now in literature still, yeah. especially this kind of very invasive, visceral work. Um, that's not to criticise it in any way. It's more something that I noticed that I think that if you were somebody who was going through a similar thing to this character, you might find it a bit too real. You yeah, know what I mean? I, I think that's true. I think that, um, yeah, it's perhaps something to bear in mind uh, as a reader mm. that, that there would probably be parts of it that could be triggering. And, and yeah, the, the talk, I mean... Um, Susanna said in the interview that she feels like the character has body dysmorphia. Yeah. Um, and I think that's definitely true. Like she sees herself as this sort of quote unquote ugly person mm-hmm. who who's unlovable and and all of that is just kind of seeped in the narrative because it is told from her point of view. Yeah. And um one of the things that she said in our interview was that um the relationship with Rachel is very much Rachel being her best friend is, is very much this kind of healing part of the narrative because Rachel just sees her as her friend yeah and doesn't judge her or doesn't kind of like think about her appearance, yeah just yeah. think she's and you never also get that physical description of her as well no yeah but all of that I think is quite subtle so yeah it's very much true that if there are definitely elements of this book that that could be triggering for Sam. and I only say that just because I think I found it very like violent in mm. some ways and um and I don't think literature should hold back from repeating or discussing these violent times and especially women's lives yeah. right um and there were just things where like i think language is a very difficult thorny thing to navigate mm. um and as you know and as i get older and the more i read books like this i appreciate what they're trying to do but i also think that like we could a book like this could also be more thoughtful uh, and about about the certain types of language used to describe someone in distress um with body dysmorphia um than but it's a where everyone is learning and I think even just to voice this is something that I wouldn't have said five years ago I would have been like yeah wow like you know it was violent and visceral um and things like that but I think now the conversation needs to be slightly more um aware of loaded language I suppose but I do think that this is I mean as a reason that we've read it we've interviewed Susanna it is really interesting novel that is very unusual and it's not really something I feel like I've ever read which I feel glad to say that we do say that a lot about the books that we talk about on this podcast um so that's the whole point I suppose is that we're trying to push out literature and voices that are unusual and haven't have been heard less and to also I suppose highlight and spotlight the actual voice and opinions of the author rather than to just ask them the questions they get asked all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Susanna talked in our interview about being asked the question of, like, is this, like, your real life? Like, is this your exact experience? Which, you know, she talked about how reductive that was. Yeah, And that is very reductive, and I think that is something that gets pushed upon female novelists in particular. You know, oh, you must have had this exact set of experiences. You know, you must have had an infected toe and thought you had HIV, maybe. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, she's like, no. Well, it's diminishing, you know, the the power of being creative and of Mm -hmm. observing the world and and writing about different experiences to your own, but also. I'm sure it is infused with her, some of her own experiences because inevitably most authors would probably say that that is the case, but mm. that doesn't mean it happened to her exactly. Um, but yeah, I think it's... Um, I would really recommend it to anyone who loves reading that sort of coming-of-age stories but yeah. is looking for something a bit different and a bit more... Yeah, more unusual, I suppose, and more, um, you know, very much female-focused, very much grounded in, in realism, um, mm-hmm. which, as you say, does make for a tough read at times, but... I think is uh, you know is ultimately optimistic and it feels yeah, I think so. candid, which it I does. appreciated. Thanks again to Sana for coming on and chatting to us. Ten Assessment is available now in hardback, ebook, and audiobook. Speaking of some of the other novels that we've discussed in in the past, <laughs> what a see, what a see. Um, well, first of all, we were really excited to see. I, I refer to her on the Instagram page as friend of the podcast. I think at this point she is a friend of the podcast. Yes. Author Beth O'Leary. Yes. Who is the author of the hugely successful novel, The Flat Chair, and it's very, very successful follow-up, <laughs> The Switch, yeah. um, who we've interviewed twice on the podcast in the past. Um, and absolutely love and yeah. support. And promote, Always have yes. like the best time with um, having her on the show. Uh, she had just announced her latest book, which is going to come out in 2021. Yes. Hopefully we'll have her back on the podcast then um, yeah, and we'll be able to ask her all about it. Um, but yeah, this book is about a road trip 
obviously based off the name called the road trip um, yes and it's uh it sounds like just a hundred percent like what we all need right now mm-hmm. would you agree yes i would i would totally agree and i think they announced it a few days ago and we've tweeted about it on our twitter shameless plug real llw on twitter um and it just it's so beth has such a knack for bringing the meet cute scenario yeah. i.e you you accidentally get trapped in an elevator with somebody who is your ex or who you don't know, you had a crush on, um, or you trip over and get into a coma and then wake up and the person who's been looking after you fall in love. Like, those kind of Nora Ephron-style meet-cutes that spawn whole films that people adore, yeah. Beth has down to a T, like... Oh, yeah. I mean, the flash I think, was maybe the most, like, actually, like, emotionally... Uh, arresting of her books because it really dealt with proper issues about incarceration and family mm. and the switch is a bit lighter but both of them and the road trip really get benefit from like putting two people in a situation in which in real life you probably wouldn't get put in that situation like you share a bed but you don't meet each other mm. you switch lives with your grandma on the road trip you end up in a car with your ex-boyfriend or 300 mile round trip what do you do it's these amazing situations in which you really want to fantasize might happen to you with a crush or an ex or whatever um and beth brings them to life with such heart and makes them so realistic and i think she really has a knack for making the reactions and the outcomes very realistic and not cliched as well she has a she has a really great sense of character and community all her books really thrive from the supporting characters i think definitely and i was when she was talking so there's a little video of her which we shared on our twitter yeah. of her talking about the road trip mm-hmm. and she mentions that these two characters who who are i'm gonna say former lovers that's a very dramatic way of putting it but <laughs> me form, and my former lover former lovers yes um they're in a car with um, the 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 main protagonist, the girl, her best friend, and then also this random other person who's just like written on the Facebook page that they want a lift to the wedding. Because uh, the point is they're on a they're on a way to a wedding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just thought it was so funny and also so accurate. Yeah. Because I think often you you when you whenever you read a synopsis of one of Beth's books, you think. I can imagine that happening. Yeah. Like, it's not out of the realms of reality. No. But also, you don't know anyone it has happened to. But it does it feel happen. realistic. Yeah. And I think that's that's so great. Um, so, yeah, we're really excited about that book. But also, she has really great news recently that her novel, The Switch, which, yeah, we interviewed Beth about earlier during the lockdown, it's being made into a film starring Rachel Brosnahan from The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Amazing. Like she's an, gonna be it's gonna be amazing. Like an amazing person to have as your as your main character. So she's gonna play Lena for those of you who read the book. Yeah. I mean next we're gonna find out that Meryl Street plays oh my god Eileen <laughs> Eileen, that's her name. Yeah, I mean, it's found to be a sort of classic, amazing yeah, actress maybe, like, maybe playing that character. Maybe like Judy Dench or something. Oh my God, or Betty... I don't even know take Betty White, to be honest with you. That'd be so fun. Um, but yeah, and I think it's interesting. We actually will slightly promote ourselves here in saying that, like, along with Beth as book being optioned, several of the books that we've actually included on the show and talked to the authors of are also being optioned into TV shows, including Rick Burnett's The Vanishing Half, um, Rodham by... Curtis Sittenfeld yeah. and Exciting Times and Exciting Times by Nisha Dolan um, all of which like, I mean we love those books they've also been very much talked about over the past mm. um, few months and, yeah. and really celebrated and heralded and won well you know been top of the best selling lists you know yes. like we're not alone in loving them so it's no surprise that they've been recognised as having the potential for working really well yeah. on TV or in film um, but yeah we're really excited to see how they're all adapted I mean they're all very different of course um, Rodham I think is a particularly interesting one because obviously it is based on Hillary Clinton a real character yeah, absolutely. so having that be a kind of alternative history series I think produced by Hulu will be kind of interesting to see how uh, that plays yeah. out that is um, interesting yeah Exciting times. I reckon it's going to be. I mean, obviously, Nisha has often been compared to Sally Rooney. Again, that it can be problematic. Problematic, yeah. But um, you can imagine it kind of also working as a sort of BBC mm. slash Hulu normal people normal style, people style yeah. drama. Maybe yeah. Lenny, our, our other good friend. Lenny will, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get on the case there. Um, and the Vanishing Half, I think, has been optioned by HBO. So. That's great because I, I think with that film or that TV show, it would need to be so far-reaching and broad and cinematic, all these different locations and different mm. characters. And, and the element of the crime drama, I think, as well. Mm. I mean, beyond anything else, Advantaging Half is a familial crime drama, right? It's like a mystery. Mystery yeah. kind of thing. I say crime, there's no specific crime committed, but it is a bit about changing identities, yeah. things like that. So I think the HBO are a good home 
In terms of Nisha, it'd be really interesting. I mean, if anybody who is following the news and we don't uh, promote any opinion on this at all, but um, there has been this kind of like tension between Britain and China when it comes to Hong Kong and a lot mm. of the book itself takes place in Hong Kong and deals with the idea of white expats mm. in Hong Kong, the role of Englishness and whiteness and Britishness in the Hong Kong identity. And Irishness. And Irishness too, and the idea of these diasporas. Interesting to see how exciting times kind of how it plays in the context of the ongoing drama that I'm sure, to be honest with you, the producers aren't really happy or want to inc- want to have to deal with um, is coming through as well. Because Hong Kong, obviously, is a is an important place in exciting times. And I think Nisha said that like, Hong Kong was somewhere where she actually wanted to, like, set it. Yeah, and she had spent some time there as well. Mm. Um, I mean, that book is set in 2016, isn't it? Mm. But I suppose all of these all of these uh, projects as well, you do wonder how they will work in, you know, our current scenario is that some, I think some productions have tried to kind of go back uh, and sort of socially distance and make that work. Um, I don't know if that's going to work for every production. Uh, So it's all very uncertain, but I think it's great news that progress is being made and like contracts are being signed and they're making these things happen. And it's also a really good, you know, obviously sometimes, and we are aware of this, um, you know, a book gets optioned for TV or film, but it never actually makes it to the, to yeah. the, the silver screen or the big screen. Yeah. I think it's just a nice prospect, really, isn't it? Yeah, I think it, I just mean that it's sort of like a, a boost for the author. Yes. As I said, all these authors, very accomplished, very respected and lauded. Mm. But it does kind of like just add to that, you know, that, that, that that's a possibility that it might get to be performed on another medium. Mm. Oh, I totally agree with you. We're looking forward to those adaptations very much, whether they come in 2021 or 2022 or whenever. I do think, I mean, we're going to be spoiled for choice when it comes to making episodes next year because it's going to be, I feel like there's just going to be so much stuff coming out because obviously, you know, with coronavirus, they've been really stopping everything and delaying everything. So 2021 will be the year when we're, you know, can't stop making episodes. Speaking of actually things being released, what a great so many good scenes. Um, there has been a release which we've all been very excited for. Um, you know, for Jessica's looking to the left of me over here because of the the entire population, the entire human race. So um, Stephanie Mayer. You guys knew where this was going, didn't you? Um, it came out with an announcement. Uh, it must have been a few months ago now. It was relatively recent. It wasn't yeah. that long ago um, that her book... I'm, I'm, I'm re- like, I want to reach out and hold it up, even though we're on a podcast. Uh, her book, from Twilight from Edward's perspective, which had been in the works for years, was actually finally coming out in August. Um, so actually it came out on, on Tuesday. I received it yesterday. I... Remember, we've talked about this on the podcast before. I did know that she'd been writing a project like this for a while. There mm. was a big problem in like the 2010s where half, like maybe 100 pages of a manuscript um, from Ever's perspective had been leaked and yeah. she ended up leaking it all on her website because she was like, I may as well show it to you. I have felt so violated by this. I probably would ever finish it. But she's gone away, done her thing, finished it. Um, and I have it in my hands, literally right now. And you're through, according to your bookmark, slash Goodreads. Actually, oh, maybe like a, a three quarters. Two thirds. Three quarters, I would say. So much maths. Funnily enough, I got it in the post yesterday. Um, can you tell the English in the post? Um, I read the same mail. And it's hefty, man. Like, Twilight, I think, was about maybe 300 pages, I would say. This is 600. Uh, oh, no, sorry. This is 750. And it's not small writing, nor is it heavyweight paper. So it's actually pretty hefty. Um, so she's really written a lot. And I think what really I would say about it at the minute is... Oh, man, I love it. You know, like, we were talking about this earlier. Um, 13 to 14-year-old us, that was kind of age we were getting mm. into Twilight. And I had, I loved it all the way up to the age of 18 plus. I wrote fan fiction, as we all know. Don't try and tell me to reveal my screen name. I will not. And I remember hearing about this book, as I said in the podcast, being like, you know what? Look, I know what 15-year-old me would do. 15-year-old me would be so excited. And I really can't let 15-year-old me down. I have to buy it and read it. Um, And I can't really put into words how formative the characters were, how much I felt like I could be Bella, how much I thought Edward was, like, the best best romantic hero on Earth. I imagine how 18th century people felt about Mr. Darcy, right? <laughs> um, and I, I recognise its problems, and I recognise, and my boyfriend likes to talk about how, you know, the Mormon cult is real in the book, and I don't wholly agree, but I do recognise 
and Stephanie May herself has talked about this, the ways in which Twilight itself is not perfect, is kind of silly and has values in it you might not want to wholly espouse or live for yourself. Just a thing for anyone listening, do not sacrifice your whole life for a, a vampire. Like, don't do it. I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't do it, but just don't do it. I, I do. I have been really, really, really enjoying it. And I've said to you already, I think that, like, what you gain from Midnight Sun is, yes, more of a look into the Twilight universe. Yes, a fun little recap of what was going on from Edward's perspective. But really what I love is you get to see Bella through Edward's eyes. And the whole point of Bella, I think, in the books that I liked was that she, she was someone that Edward loved. And Edward thought that everything she did was great. And he listened to her and he valued what she thought and he, she valued what she, he valued what she said. And you never got that from Emma's perspective. You only got that from Bella. And Bella never really thought about it or never really had time to think about that either because all she did throughout the entire books was worry that he didn't like her, which I understand made her boring and annoying to people. But from Emma's perspective, she is this amazing, interesting person who is so confident and uh, he reads her as quite aloof and and confident I say again at times and you know she is somebody who changes his entire existence and makes him want to be a better person and he goes to this transformation in a way to try and keep Bella from being hurt by him because he divests himself of his vampire identity in order to become the kind of man that he thinks wouldn't hurt her and this transformation Edward goes through is really interesting and she writes about it at length and I think deals with it in quite an interestingly very well thought out way I mean the writing is still a bit juvenile but she deals with these issues I think in a really interesting way and Bella herself like she is who I thought she was in Twilight but you just didn't see it because you know the the angsty teenage what Stephanie Mayer thought was cool teenage angst and was really sexy and interesting clouds all of that but Edward while also being a bit of a psychotic vampire let's not lie it really sees Bella for the person I thought she was and she really comes through in there uh, and the love he feels for her and how proud he feels and all those things I, I, I find that I found that really compelling actually um Anyway, yeah, no, I've been... I, think, I, <laughs> it, I was saying to you earlier that um, there was an interview with Stephanie Mayer in the New York Times yeah. this week where she was asked the question of would she have written Edward in the way she does mm. um, had she been uh, devising the story post-Me Too? Yeah. And you touched a bit on that there. Um, you know, Edward's character, he kind of watches her in a slightly kind of creepy way. Yeah. Um, very creepy way. In fact, like when she's sleeping, right? Like in her yeah, bed. And, yeah, and, yeah. and all of that, I think, can, can read as incredibly problematic. But in response to this question in the New York Times, Stephanie Mayer said that she always just saw it as fantasy. Mm-hmm. And she saw it as a book that was not set in our real world, was not about, quote unquote, real people. It wasn't grounded in realism. And she just didn't really see it as a problem as a result and she kind of recognized in this in this answer that she that other people would and that other people would find it to be very problematic Mm -hmm. but that she just hadn't thought about it at the time because she was just seeing it as a A fun book yeah yeah. Uh, which is interesting um you i read all the twilight novels when i was a teenager i've um seen the the first couple of movies i haven't actually seen all of them um and i haven't revisited the series in recent years so I'm not sure how qualified I am to speak about these issues that are kind of ingrained in the novel because or in this series because I haven't reread the books in recent years or anything. But I do think that there are definitely issues with the story and it's good that we are talking about those and that Stephanie Mayer herself is also acknowledging some of those problems. I also think that's actually really interesting to write a book to basically rewrite your book from another protagonist's point of view yeah like I don't know how many other authors have done that which is not me heralding her as some like literary sensation it's more just like what an interesting kind exercise of, yeah, yeah yeah and I think you know she also said in this New York Times article that she'd found it very hard because she had was limited to using the dialogue that she'd used in the original book she definitely is limited by that I can feel that for sure yeah and we were when we were talking about this earlier off air I was saying oh she could have like you different dialogue and try to imply that like different people remember things differently but that might have been a bit too literary for the Twilight universe um but yeah I mean you've got to hand it to her that she's able to still stir up uh what would the word be stir the pot stir the The twilight pot the twilight pot the the, the pot of blood pot of of weird (laughs) sexual desire masked as bloodlust yeah I mean it's really interesting I was saying I so (laughs) I me and my flatmate got 
um, slightly drunk. Don't drink if you're underage, kids. And I read the first 100 pages to her out loud last night. It took right. four hours. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's funny because we so enjoyed it. And I realised that, like, A, most of the book is Edward thinking things through for about 10 billion hours. Mm-hmm. He, oh, my God, he thinks so much about everything. Which I, I'm not surprised by, to be honest with you. That was really a defining trait of his character as he thought about everything loads. Um, he also judges other students very harshly. He's so judgy. Well, I mean, hasn't he been, been in school for, like, 70 years? Yeah, like, I He must know. be fed up of it by now. He definitely is fed up of it. He's very judgy, which is quite funny. And I always thought Ed, Edward was... Edward's basically like a society wife. He's very judgy, and all he does is judge things. Um, but equally... It was, yeah, and it was really interesting reading it aloud because there are certain, obviously, sentences and scenes you recognise and they, they track kind of weirdly differently in Edward's perspective. And also, Stephanie May asked to write them slightly differently, but the language doesn't change. So there are scenes in which, in Twilight, Bella is hearing this vampire speak to her in a very cryptic way and you kind of, as a reader, know that he's being like, I'm dangerous. It'd be better if we weren't friends. That reads as like, very like, ooh, you know, he's being cryptic, he's a vampire, mm. ooh. In the book, that's he, Edward thinks that's him trying to warn her off. And I'm like, dude, you're not doing a very good job because you're being so weirdly cryptic. And the whole point is that there are some points where, like, it's just so overly dramatic. And you can't get away from that because that is what she wrote and that's what she thought was sexy and what she thought was interesting. So she has to stick by it. And in some ways, I do really, like, respect that. What that she's is, like, this yeah. is what I wrote. This is what, you know, I often think that, like, this isn't a YA book, right? This is for teenagers. It's not for adults. It's for fun. I do not read it and think, oh, this is the best thing ever written. And I think I've talked to you about this before, about how I kind of get annoyed that, like, literary critics or film critics review Star Wars, a movie for kids and for nerds, right? It's not It's not meant to be the best film on earth. It's not meant to be like The Irishman or something like that, right? It's not meant to be, like, on paper, a good movie. It's meant to be a movie that makes money and is fun. And I think that trying to review Twilight as a serious book really just... The only reason you do that is because it's a liter- it's huge and it's a mainstream book, yeah, right? But it's like, you shouldn't be reviewing a Twilight film as a serious movie critic. Like, it's, it's, it's about a teenage girl falling in love with a vampire. It's it's like all the romantic novels that I read in some ways are very stupid in the things that the protagonists do and the weird situations they get in. Like the amount of times in a romantic novel, um, I only read Regency ones for any, if that is useful for anybody's, you know, anybody's <laughs> context. Yeah. Book, uh, they, the amount of times they go on their horses, get trapped in the rain, have to go hide in a nearby woodcutter's cottage and then have sex. It's ridiculous. That never really happens in real life. So I think that like, People who take Twilight too seriously, they're right to do that because it is a very well-read book. People need to be aware of its full, of its of its fallbacks. But if anybody was like, it's so damaging, I'd be like, no, it's not. It's a book about vampires. Like, it's really not meant to be taken seriously. And I don't think Stephanie Mayer asks you to. And you could say, like with E.L. James, who wrote Twilight fan fiction and masqueraded it as its own novel, Fifty Shades of Grey, um... They made money off it. They need to be held responsible. They need to. They're 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 role models. They are in the in the in the the mainstream in the zeitgeist. And you know they need to be forced to actually like be responsible when they write. But I don't really see Stephanie Mayer as a responsible writer. You know, all our characters are good to each other, and women don't get raped excessively in the book. And Edward just tries to protect Bella, and it's all about love and things like that. And from my perspective, I do think that like Midnight Sun's a silly book, and I. Would wouldn't say you had to read it but personally for me I enjoy it and that's yeah anyone who says that Twilight should be taken seriously kind of misses the point yeah I suppose it's interesting like when something reaches a sort of juggernaut level of fame Mm -hmm. it then obviously spawns lots of think pieces and lots of criticism and yeah um it's probably analyzed in a way that if it had just kind of sunk without a trace it would never have been as you say people would say that that's worthwhile because it is exerting influence yes. and as you say she's making money off it and and profiting off that so it's an interesting one um you know I think it one of the things I was interested in asking you about it is that you're you're you know revisiting this in your 20s you haven't whilst you've like rewatched the films you've maybe even reread the books you know since you were mm. a teen yes I, I have yeah you haven't like been approaching it for the first time in no. that same way no and I'm sure that if Twilight came out now like 
A, I probably wouldn't even necessarily read it. But if no. I did read it, it would be because it had, you know, become this, like, massive, famous book that yeah. I was just intrigued by. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would be different, you know, because you're looking at it through an adult eyes. Yeah. So I, I wonder when you're reading it whether you find yourself, like, critiquing it because you're, like, thinking about it as, you know, a sophisticated reader, a woman of the world, or, or whether you're actually kind of, like, finding yourself reverting into being, like, 13-year-old you. Yeah, I do revert... I've always found Edward to be an interesting character and I like him. Mm. So I enjoy reading from his perspective. But also, I have to say, I sit through scenes waiting for them to kiss. I'm like, kiss, do it, do it. Oh my God, they're going to kiss. <gasps> oh, when does it happen? Even when you Ooh. know what happens because you've seen, you've like read the book before. Yeah, but even, even so, I want to know. I want to see, I'm, I'm a really big romantic, you know, as well. So I will say that like, I'm somebody who reads the book, reads the book for the couples. So I think for me as well, personally, I read it as that, 26 year old girl who is me who exists still who just wants the couple to succeed yeah i think that's not everybody i don't think no but you are also making a valid point that you can enjoy things on different levels yeah and like you can enjoy a book and appreciate it for being uh, very clever in a literary way Mm -hmm. and like or opening your eyes to something in society you weren't aware of or you know you can also enjoy a book for just like fulfilling your need to read something that's fun and escapist especially right now and you know frothy and takes you nostalgic takes you back to your your teen years and Mm. can be read aloud like you know there's probably lots of books that you love that you couldn't like read aloud to somebody without them being like please stop you know like so I think that you know it's that kind of balance between like the high and the low you know Mm. like we can't kind of only herald highbrow fiction or yes. highbrow pop culture we mm. have to also appreciate the the lowbrow as well yeah sorry stephanie man but you're great i don't think I she, love you. she won't mind she won't mind uh, when she listens to the podcast oh, yeah, cool. <laughs> and she, when she wants to be a guest um, <laughs> we can finally get to meet stephanie Mayer. <laughs> Uh, Midnight Sun is out now in all good retailers in hardback it's thick if you don't want it wait for the paperback it'll be out in six months do you think there's an audio book do you think Edward oh, I Edward Cullen Rob Pattinson Rob Pattinson is upset this book exists if I you know, ask me sure he is, he's but... had enough he's Batman he wants to be left alone our social media um, should you want to get in contact with us and we love interacting with people we do um, we have a s- slowly growing fan base very slowly uh, <laughs> well, a few fans um, we our twitter is at real LLW our instagram is loves neighbours watch no punctuation all over case and if you have if you want to reach out to us with a pitch for a guest or you want to chat with us or say anything you like you can email us to at loves labors watched all lowercase at gmail.com. Um, and yeah, that's it from us. We'll be back in uh, two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, with something different. That's the fun thing about. With Stephanie Mayer and Robert <laughs> No, no, no. Um, but until then, uh, stay safe, everyone. I uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. Get in touch with us if you like, and we'll see you next time.